This is the fifth of six weeks that we're going to be having this particular class. Just be aware of a couple things. First of all, we're taking a two-week break, all right? So the class actually, there's one further week, week six, but the next two Sundays, we're doing church business stuff. Next Sunday, literally in this room at this time, will be a church chat. And again, what we do, try to do is have a meeting where the members, but again, anybody's welcome to come, but we're specifically the members who are able to see the congregational business report and all the updates on things can then come and ask any questions they have about the budget or about ministry issues or whatever. That, that's the purpose of it. And one of the benefits of having a growth hour in between the services is that we can do that literally right on Sunday morning. So that's just a huge advantage. So just encourage you to be part of that and be present there, ready to dialogue. It's, it's, it's not one of our church chats where it's a free-for-all because we want to get ready for business. We do have those church chats as well where it's like we're addressing a change happening or COVID issues or even like what questions do you have. We only get a 45-minute period of time, so we are going to focus it in preparation for the business being the week that follows. So next week, is church chat. The week after that is Acts at the Congregational Business Meeting. Again, very glad we can do that on Sunday mornings. That makes it accessible for people to be here. Um, th- th- those are obviously for members, but again, we, non-members are always invited to come, encourage, encourage that, and love to have you part of that and be there. There, there. There's no secretive business. This is just uh, congregationalism, what it means to be congregational, right? which is what our church believes is the biblical response. Congregationalism argues that rather than some bishop in some Rockford district or Winnebago County headquarters, that every church has the spirit and is able to then to select its own leaders, etc., and make decisions about being a local embassy for the kingdom of God in this place. And so that's what congregationalism ultimately is. And those meetings the next two weeks flesh that out. So I encourage you to be part of that. Then we will come back. So it'll be in three weeks from today, and we will have a sixth class. Now listen, I am not preparing anything for that particular class other than two things. One is any questions you have, and you can feel free to email me those. I have yet to receive an email with a question. Now I have received an email for conversations, so I've met with a few people outside of the class about some of the things that we've talked about regarding Revelation but I have yet to say, hey, would you, here's a question I would have that maybe, for example, that, that last week that I could raise. So please think about your questions. The reason I suggest email, though you are more than welcome just to ask it uh, when we meet again in a couple weeks, but the reason I suggest email is sometimes it's hard to know how to phrase it. Some people aren't comfortable in, 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 a, in a group this size framing the question, or they might not sure exactly how to say it. Right? You can send me an email, I'm not, and, and I can kind of get to the gist of what you're asking. I could even email back and say, I think you're asking this or this. Could, is it one of those things? So feel free and encourage you to do that, and then I will address any of your questions that you have or clarifications about what we spoke about that sixth week time we meet. The other thing I would love to cover, if there's time and there aren't a horde of questions, would be I'd love to give you the two versions of the biblical story that draw up two different conclusions about the end times, right? So those two versions would, would technically be what's called dispensational theology and covenant theology. I would love to at least spend 15 minutes telling you those two versions of the story. Because in, in the dispensational version, there is a huge emphasis on the end times 
and specifically a huge emphasis on the nation of Israel. And I'd like to explain how they get there. That's a biblical position, right? That is a very biblical position that our brothers and sisters hold. Remember, we early on, we ranked those positions and would say either dispensational or covenant would be a third-tier issue, third rank. It's not something to split over over the church. We all believe in the gospel. We, we, we've all narrowed it down to what it means to do, be a church. That's second tier, like the, well, how do we do congregationalism or baptism or whatever it may be. Third rank issues is interpretive issues regarding the Bible that are not rooted in the gospel, right? And how we determine the role of Israel, the significance of the end times, those are two different stories or interpretations that the Bible tells. And I would love to go over that with you guys because that is so important. And I am aware that that is complex. That, that's where I'm pressing on you to see the forest and not just the individual trees. And that is harder. So for some of you, that's going to be like, I've never thought of the story that way. Well, it's at least a good exposure. And I will show you how in hopefully 15 minutes, but knowing me, that would mean 25 minutes, um, we could cover those two versions of the story, and you could literally see. I mean, this literally here's a practical value. If you want to go to Dallas, if your grandson or son want to go to Dallas Theological Seminary, right, or Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, you can imagine where Dallas is located. One of those would teach them one version of the story. The other would teach the other. Like literally, the schools are divided. Church denominations can be divided, not in a bad way, but in a third-tier way, over how they understand the biblical story. So those kind of things can be helpful for you just to navigate the Christian world, to know what resources and what particular teachers might be trying to say, etc. But it does actually help you get to know your Bible better. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do we want to be a catechizing church. That's one of our kind of Hope 2025 vision statements. We want to be a catechizing church. And a catechizing church doesn't mean we just, we just know like what we covered today if you were in first service. We don't just want to know 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 through 8. Well, we want to get a view of the, of the big story. And that, that, to me, that's important. That's where there's the most, I think, need in the church today. I'm literally working right now on a book that's called From Creation to New Creation, a biblical theology of the goal of all things. And I'm like literally on my second chapter now, and I'm working through that. And it's, but I, I'm writing that thinking full well, I really hope that somebody could read this and they'd get the picture of the biblical story. Like they would just see from the creation to the new creation, God's clear intentionality from start to finish. Because I just think that's an area that there's not a lot of help there. And publishers are realizing this, schools are realizing this, which is why a couple years ago, InterVarsity Press asked me to be a contributor to one of those volumes on this theme, and I think it's a good thing. It's a good job for me as a pastor, not only of a local church, but have a pastoring role in the larger church to help explain some of these things. I'm going to pray. I'm going to give you a, be a brief review of the intentions of Revelation, and then I'm going to spend most of our time on the insights of Revelation, right? So we've talked about, call, you know, the, we've done the Aaron Rodgers lecture, relax, Aaron Rodgers, future quarterback of another team. That's part of, I'm going to pray for that in a minute. Uh, we've done the relax. We've done, where's Brian? There he is. We've done what is an apocalypse, right? Like what is the form of it? Like how are we supposed to read it? Uh, and, and then we've talked the last two weeks on how, what, what, what's the method for reading it? Like how do I interpret Revelation? We look specifically at the, of the difference between code versus lens approach. That's really important. Those are good, helpful categories. I'm either doing a code approach or I'm doing a lens approach. 
Uh, I'm doing a predictive future or I'm doing the pastoral prophetic. Kind of with that, how is Revelation working? How is God intending this to speak into us? And so then I'll give you what I think are seven insights. Really like, here's the theology of Revelation. Here's what it's trying to say in seven points. And then we'll, we'll spend our time on that. But let me just pray. Father, minister to us. Uh, help us as we now in this growth hour, uh, we try to do catechesis as your children have done for centuries. That is, that we would be instructing, uh, instructed on the core truths of the faith. Guide us now as we engage this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, here are, here, here's what I would say would be some intentions of, of revelation. When I say, when I say intentions, what, I, what I'm saying is this. Like, this is what the book is trying to communicate. Like, we want to know what it's trying to communicate. This is what the author, not just John, let's say, but arguably God himself is wanting us to know. Here's his intentions. First would be this. Revelation gives revelation, right? But what I mean by that is it gives insight, not riddles. And depicts the present primarily, not merely the future. So now you're just seeing where my understanding of what an apocalypse is, how it should be interpreted, gets down to the nitty-gritty of intention. Revelation is not just trying to say, hey, this may not affect you because the Lord may not come back for 400 years, whatever the case may be, but this will be really helpful for one generation in the future. No, I would say Revelation is trying to show you how to live now. It's trying to say, hey, you need glasses, not for nearsight, or for foresight, but for insight, right? You're not, it's not nearsight or foresight, it's insight. You need to see what the world is really like. You need to see who the true enemies are. You need to see who's really in charge. Like, you just need to see that and be reminded of that regularly. And again, one of the saddest parts of this is that because Revelation has been so number one, confusing, and number two, debated, actually, we haven't been feeding the church on this. Like, we have not. We being your pastors over probably the last at least 100 years have failed to give nutritious balance of the full meal of Scripture by leaving Revelation kind of away, saying things like, you know what, I'm, I'm not even sure what to do with this. It's a huge area of debate. I don't want to mess with that. Now, you would not say, you know what, that's understandable. Maybe as a parent, you don't know what to do with vegetables, and so you never give your kid vegetables. That would be a bad idea. All right? Or you never give them any protein. That would be a bad idea. If you never give them any apocalypse, that's a bad idea too. And again, it's not because it's a bunch of riddles that no one can understand. It's actually revelation. It's letting you see the world as it truly is. Here's a second uh, intention. Revelation is answering primarily the who, what, and why questions, not merely the how. Again, we tend to read this. Again, that's, that's the emphasis of the code approach, decoding it to try to, well, how's it all going to end? And again, I don't think either the beginning or the end of the Bible is making that primary. It's making primary the who. And it's always God, by the way, if you're kind of wondering who it is. It's always God. God's always the who, but the who also involves God's people in the beginning and in the end. The what and the why. So those are, the, and that's where it gives such insight into the world that we live in now. 
It shows us how to navigate being dual citizens, one of this country and one of God's country, the kingdom of God. How do you navigate that? What should I be looking out for as my allegiance is pulled in different directions? What's that look like? Because you've called me in, in several texts to, be, to honor the kings ahead of me and to be a faithful citizen of my country, whether it's the Philippines or Indonesia or the United States of America. So you, you've called me to do that, but now you're telling me, watch out, because human kingdoms will want my full allegiance. Well, in the same way, we deal with that tension all the time where Jesus says, be in the world, but not of the world. And that kind of balance of our dual citizenship is what Revelation is trying to show you. Be aware of the who and the what and the why as you live faithfully in this world. Here's a third intention. Revelation is trying to reach the heart and the will. We hit on some of this stuff with the talked about apocalyptic. What is that form of literature? Their fancy word genre it's dealing with the heart and the will. It's not just the mind. Again, we read it like, and I think we do Genesis this way too, we try to read it like we're engineer scientists. And man, the Bible, as much as it likes to inform you, we are also being shaped by the last 200-year dominance of science and the mind. What Revelation is actually trying to do is say, let me grab you by the heart a little bit. I just want to show you a couple things. Like, look on the throne. Who sits there? Well, that's Christ. And who's gathered around him? All his people. Okay, now go to work on Monday. You're good. Well, that's not, well, that's not really hitting the mind. It's hitting the emotions, the will, the heart. It doesn't mean Revelation isn't giving data or details. It just means it's primarily trying to pastor you. It's pastoring you. In fact, I think we would be good devotional readers of Scripture if we realize that the Bible is actually at times serving a prophetic role, challenging us, and half the time, uh, the other half, is trying to pastor us or shepherd us, right? It's speaking to the hard-hearted and the broken-hearted all over the place. That's a good approach to reading the general rule. Every text is either addressing my hard heart or my broken heart. And you'll find that God will, even in the text, if you were in first service, if you're not, you're getting a little trailer, even in the text today, it's rebuking the church that it better care for widows, and then it's rebuking widows and say, hey, 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 you better be a true widow. You better not be milking the church family for money. Like, notice, it is one and the same time, hard heart, broken heart. Like, so that, that, that's what the Bible's generally trying to do. We actually, and this is a lot of our churches, to a fault of our churches, our churches know that if you want to grow in big numbers, you don't address the hard, hard stuff. You address the brokenhearted. You hit the felt needs of people, and you try to just deal with that. But to be honest with you, you cannot work through the Bible expositorily. If you do that, you are leaving out 50% of God's word because half the time the Bible's like, who do you think you are? What did you just say about yourself? Oh, woe is me? Oh, it's my fault you're saying that? Like, I mean, you can, just, you can just see God's word. If it could speak back, can you imagine what it would say to our thinking and processing? Oh, really? It's my fault that this is the case? You're, you're gonna, oh, I wasn't prepared for this? What did you say about me? Just imagine if your study Bible like all of a sudden talked back. Watch out. Last, last in, uh, intention, Revelation offers both comfort and challenge to God's people in all ages, and we just hit on that. That's how I think, rather than the predictive approach, hey, this is like a 
a trailer for the future, it's actually pastoring you in the present, prophetically exhorting you and correcting you in the present time. So let me give you the seven insights that Revelation gives to the church in all ages until the return of Christ. In fact, I think that's a good way to frame it. Like, so Christ has come, get this, right? When you and I, probably because of our code upbringing, we think of the end times as like maybe the last seven years of the millennium, right? But in the Bible's language, the end times started when Christ returned. Like, it literally already started. That's why you'll say in these, like Paul or Peter, the in these last days, and you're thinking, last days you wrote this 2,000 years ago. Yes, but it was still after Christ. In between the first and second coming of Christ is the latter days. It's the last period of time where God in his patience is being most generous to a broken, fallen world, uh, calling the church to declare to that world, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, all the truth about Jesus Christ, to be an embassy of the kingdom in all the nations until Christ comes back and completes the task that he started. We are in the last days. And I'm not just saying that based upon new world order or vaccines or uh, currency things, kind of coding approaches. I'm saying that just from reading my Bible. Doesn't matter what the news is saying. It could have been the day after the resurrection and the the, the, the Christianity today in the first century could have said, we are now in the beginning of the end times, and they would have been right. So don't just think end times like, I think we're in the end times because it's getting worse. Okay, it's never actually gotten worse because it's not like sin was at 40% until the 60s, right? Like the 60s came, and then we're now at 90% sin factor. Like sin has always been 100%. But we, we don't speak that way, do we? We always speak like, it. oh, it's gotten way worse. Really? Have you been selling your children off to some male elite to be a sex toy so that your other kids could go to college? You think it's gotten worse. Really? Because now there's cuss words on TV and they don't bleep it out? That's worse? You ain't seen worse, lady, right? I mean, that's what, you, that's what, that's what, what Christians from a couple hundred years ago would say. Really? You haven't been slaughtered for your faith yet? It's gotten worse? How many in your church have died at the stake? Have you lost 20% of your church because they wouldn't confess to Caesar? It's not worse. Sin's always been sin. It just masquerades differently. Now it pulls at your allegiance. In fact, one of the beauties, if we can say it that way, of what Satan does is rather than looking like Satan, he looks like something good. And if he can pull you away from the true good, he wins. That's what he wants to do. He would love for you to love a human kingdom over the kingdom of God. All he's got to do, you can even baptize a human kingdom in all your Christian language. Go ahead, do all you want, baptize it. All he's got to do is get you to love a human kingdom more than the kingdom of God, and he wins your allegiance. That's all he's got to do. He doesn't have to masquerade or powers or demonic oppression or possession. doesn't even need to do that with us. He can just simply say, I've got all of them to love the wrong thing. And he wins. But you don't think Revelation is wanting you to see that? Again, it's not nearsight or foresight, it's insight. That's the spectacles Revelation gives. So here are the seven insights the book of Revelation as a whole gives. First, it talks about the victory of God and the reign of the Lamb. For each of these, I'm going to give you one key word that kind of puts it in place. 
Revelation completes the story of the Bible, creation and new creation. The story ends depicting the faithful, missional, creator God bringing humanity and all creation to its proper end. Reconciliation, harmony, eternal joy in the presence of God. At the center of all of this is guess who? Jesus. The slaughtered lamb who accomplishes God's purposes and reigns over creation. So what is all of that message trying to say to you? Trust God. Trust him. When it looks bad, when you feel overwhelmed, trust. Now again, you got to do that in a nation where you think we're free to worship, and we are. Like there's not there's not like government stopping us, but man, are we tempted to worship all the wrong things. You've got to do that in our country. That I, I trust you, Jesus, that you are the one that satisfies, not my human kingdom, not my money, not my power, not my self-sustaining, not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, not the American dream. I trust in you. I trust you gotta do that in America, and you gotta trust if you're in China and literally. Somebody saying too loud when you're trying to do whispering hymns in an apartment building of no more than eight people and the neighbors call the police and here come the cops, which is actually a story that happened to a missionary not long ago. you got to trust. When your pastor gets arrested, in jail for many years, his wife gets arrested, in jail for many years, you're not even sure what you're going to do. You know who sits on the throne. Who sits on the throne? I, I, I deep memories of teaching one of my kids who was super scared of water. I literally, they would stand the edge, and I wanted them to jump in. I was never going to say, hey, jump in. I moved my arm. I was never going to be one of those. I was like, I will catch you. Do you trust me? And, and they, they just kept looking at the water. I'm like, right here. Look at my eyes. Look at my eyes. Look at my, don't even look at the water. Look at my eyes. And I just put my hands here, and literally, it was, it was almost ridiculous. Like, I'm practically touching their weights. Like, that's how silly it was. And they weighed like nothing, Right? So they jump out, and I'm like, I literally just held them over the water before I put them in. And then I put them back on the side. I say, do you have any doubt that I can catch you? No. Okay, now look at my eyes. And you jumped at me. And they just looked right at me. Okay, what is Christ saying? Look at me, look at me, look at me. Don't look over there. Don't look over there. Look at me. What do you see? I'm, I'm right here. I literally, I made every carbon that exists in the world. I made all of that. You look at me. Brothers and sisters, do you know how many of our siblings in the past with guillotines over their heads or flames at their feet or guns aiming at them were slaughtered because of their faith in Christ? Did they trust in their country's democracy to save them? Is that what you would have said? Hey, you know what? If you just get democracy, you'll be good. If you just get religious freedom, that's your problem. You just need religious freedom. Is that going to save them? You're saying, look to Christ, brother. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to him. Look to him. He's right there. Look. He's got you. Look to him. That's what Revelation's trying to say. Second insight, the, the, it speaks about the reality of evil and challenger kingdoms. Again, the key word would be allegiance. Guard your allegiances. Evil is real, and opposing kingdoms will make their stand against God and his kingdom. 
These kingdoms, by their very nature, make seductive, blasphemous, immoral claims and engage in practices that bring disorder to humanity's relationship to God and to others. See them for what they are and trust in the kingdom of God first and foremost. It is very hard to be a dual citizen. It is super hard to do. And to be honest with you, that has been a weak area in the American church. It has not been a weak area for Christians in other countries. We can do better than that. Where we, we have other strengths that we do well at, that's an area where we have been weak. We have brought them two together. In fact, I've had many people in our church family not even say something to me like this. I, I don't even, I, honestly, I haven't even thought much about the kingdom of God. Like that just hasn't been on the radar. And, and I, I just say to them, I mean, that's, that's not just your fault. I mean, that's ultimately you haven't been shepherded to do that because we've, we, we've really wedded together the two, God's kingdom and our kingdom, and we kind of brought them together. And you can totally and should be a faithful citizen of both, but you just got to know one will ultimately turn on the other. That's just the way it's going to be. And you've got to balance that. Word. There, there's that tension again, in but not of. In but not of. Make the kingdom great. That's what the church should be shouting. No matter what their policy about human kingdoms, they could, they could be all over the place. But we've, we, in, the, in this gathering, we make the kingdom great. We do. Because we know what is true about the temptation for allegiance for other things. Third insight, the temptation to idolatry. Christians will be constantly tempted to worship the wrong things. Since we were made to worship, John, Johnny Calvin, if I can call him Johnny, uh, I'm pretty sure he's a pretty serious guy, so, but he's long dead, right? Johnny Calvin lived in the 16th century, used the phrase that the heart is an idle factory. We are masters of making things something we worship. We elevate it to worship. And, and, and there's, there's a good reason for that. Here's the good reason. The good reason is because you were actually made to worship. Like you were literally designed to be a worshiper. So it's not if you will worship, it's what and who. So everybody on this planet has a devotional life. It's the object of their devotion that would be the question. Everybody has a devotional life. You can have the most, well, you don't, you know, you, you don't have a devotional life. Oh, yeah, they do. They love money. Or they love pleasure. Or they love what you, you put it in the blank. They, they're loving something. The root of all sin, full stop, is idolatry or misdirected worship and love. Other religions or even civil secular religion will seek to win the allegiance and worship of Christians. Power, money, pleasure, fame, even human kingdoms. God is your first love. He will be your ultimate satisfaction and is your only and proper object of worship. Avoid the temptation to idolatry. And again, hear here how some of these insights are pastoral. I got you. And here some of them are prophetic, right? Comfort and challenge. Comfort, I totally got you. Challenge, what's your first love? And you would hope that in the church that that would be there. Like to be honest with you, if I'm functioning pastorally as a pastor prophetic role, there should be times where I'm probing you in certain things and you're like, hey, why are you coming to that? And again, not me personally making a judgment about you personally, but about God's word at times should 
Comfort and God's word at times should challenge. And you should expect that from your shepherds who are leading you. You should expect that. All of us need that. I need that. You need that. We all need that. The church that never talks about sin, never talks about, never, never deals with that, isn't being faithful. Fourth insight, the call to faithfulness. The church is exhorted to be faithful to God by resisting all false worship and kingdoms, even though this requires spiritual discernment and may result in various kinds of suffering. Again, 1 Peter 2. Think, think, of, think of the, call, the key word for the call to faithfulness there is identity. 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. So what's your national identity? What's your ministry identity? What's your racial identity? All of those, by the way, the world's going to want to speak into. In fact, in 2020 alone, all of those have been on the table somewhere. The call to faithfulness. Be faithful. And it requires discernment. We have to be careful judge and determine when and how and why. And even among this, Christians can disagree. They can. Some Christians, in regard to the national identity, some Christians will not even participate in national political activity. They will not vote at all. They don't. They, they feel like it, that's their balance of the in but not of. They feel like if I'm in but not of, I can't even participate. Others, you literally would have a hard time telling which nation they love the most. God's kingdom or the United States of America. In fact, probably most of the time they've wedded the two together, right? So what does it look like to be faithful, to be set apart, to be distinct, to be a nation that, by the way, in the nation that's Christian, it would involve people from every human kingdom and citizenship who's a believer in Jesus Christ. It's not, in a sense, we're all immigrants into this nation. None of us belong. We're all outsiders to the kingdom of God. All of us are immigrants, and second of all, it has nothing to do with your national identity. It has to do with your kingdom identity. So some dude who speaks no English in Mexico, literally in this embassy, would totally belong, even though it would be illegal for him to be outside these doors. Now, how do you live like that? How do you think about other nations? Do you think about them from a kingdom perspective, or do you think about them from a human kingdom perspective? It, you can see it's complex. And you can see that Christians will totally disagree on those things. And we don't need to work out all those details now. It's just for you to be aware of the complexity and to see the nuance, i.e. to have insight into the dual nature of what it means to be a Christian and to be a human in all the other ways that you're a human. It's going to look different for an American Christian than a Mexican Christian, than an Iranian Christian, than a Chinese Christian. They're all going to have to navigate this differently than we are. But they have to navigate it. And if you and I haven't been navigating that, then we haven't had the spectacles and the lenses that Revelation is giving us to see that. That's why we need Revelation to remind us our true identity. Fifth, uh, the call to an alternate vision. Right? The spiritual discernment required of the church demands an alternative vision of God and of reality that unveils the lies and the idolatry of the godless world and its kingdom. It's a vision that needs the Spirit's wisdom to see and apply. 
Revelation gives the lens to see this vision and the comfort and challenge to live it out. Like, what is the true story of the world? What is your story? Like, what's the story you're living out? Like, that's what Revelation is actually trying to show you. It's showing you the end. It's showing you the end of the story so that you can live it out well. By the, by the end of that jumping in the water instruction with one of my kids, they would literally run from 10 feet away from the pool, and I'd be, let's say, seven or eight feet back because they had absolute full confidence that their dad was going to catch them. No fear. Because they saw the end already. They knew that no matter how they jumped in, no matter what it looked like, their dad had them. Total confidence in that. And it caused them to live in a way that was different than when they were not looking at their dad. So when you see the end of what the Father can do and what the Father will do, and when you see the power of the Father, it gives you insight to know how to live in the now. Sixth, the call to a faithful witness. Christian resistance to lesser kingdoms and idolatry conforms to the pattern of Jesus Christ and his apostles and the saints and the prophets and the martyrs. We're called to be faithful. We're called to be true. We're called to be courageous. We're called to be just. And arguably, we're called to be nonviolent. It is not passivity, though, but activity, consisting of the formation of communities and individuals who pledge allegiance to God alone and who reflect his character and carry out his mission. So, I mean, if, if our human kingdom is going to present us with an American dream, what do your kids know about the Christian dream? What's the Christian dream? Guarantee you it's probably not a white picket fence as a guarantee. What would it be? What would the Christian dream be for your kids if you could Christianly shepherd them? They would, God would be their first love. Again, they could, have, they, could have, they could be the brightest mind and get a full ride to Harvard, or they could be struggling at Rock Valley, no difference. That they would make God their first love. That they would know who their father is, God the Father. That they would be on mission for him. That they would be pursuing excellence for the glory of Christ in all they do. Whether they are creators and designers of a vaccine that could save millions of lives, or they literally put up windows for people. They fix carburetors. They shovel snow on roads. They do it for the glory of God. Common grace, human flourishing is what they pursue. They love, get this, they love their spouse till death do them part. And they will give to their kids, full stop. But not just some kind of idolatrous thing that their kids become their lives. Because that's what, again, the evil one would love you to just focus on the family, right? He would love for you just to be loving on your kids and have shrines in your homes of all your kids. But you actually, like a shepherd with comfort and challenge, direct them to make God their first love. Like That would be the Christian dream. What's the American dream? And which one is catechized us more? The Christian dream or the American dream? It's just worth thinking about, isn't it? You see how Revelation was like, huh, so you're American, 2021, Midwest, interesting. Let me look you over a little bit. What do you love? What do you worship? 
What do you fear? What's your goal and purpose? Well, that's interesting. Let me give you these glasses. Look at the world. What do you see? Ah, oh, money. That's fading, isn't it? Yeah. That, oh, there, oh, that's not it either, is it? Oh, nope, it's not that either. Look. You see now? Okay. Keep the glasses and now live. Just live. Because you can see what it is now. So go live. Last one. And for the first time, we could be on time. Which itself might mean the Lord's about to return and we didn't even need to do this class. <laughs> Seventh, the reality of the new creation. Key word is hope. God the Creator and Christ the Redeemer will take evil and injustice seriously and are shortly, even if that's thousands of years after He said He'd come, shortly about to come and judge humanity and save the faithful and renew creation. When God created the world and seven times said it was good, He wasn't joking. He will make good on what He called it. And he will renew creation and he will dwell with his people. And in this book that I've been working on, even, even on Friday I was writing some of this. I was, I, work, I was doing interpretation in Genesis 1 through 2. And I, I, think that, I think literally what Genesis 1 and 2 is describing about God is promising to do is what Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters, is what he says, done, finished. It is kind of God's it is finished. Remember Jesus from the cross? Except if the it is finished from the cross was a special grace it is finished, when at the end, when he, he literally says it is finished in Revelation 21, 22, when he says it there, it's like common grace it is finished. Like I made the world, I finished the world. Done. And who is there with him but his people? You know those same ones that were scared to jump into the water and he just said, I told you I got this. Look me in the eye. I got this. Well, I mean, that's rich. I think there's, that's rich stuff for us to see. Yet, to be honest, and I had a couple people say this to me. This is what I've heard people say. If I were reading Revelation, I don't know if I would have seen all of that. Fair enough. I think it helps that I have been in school longer than most people should be. I think that helps. But I also think that's the job of a pastor and a teacher. Calvin was so concerned about people not being able to read God's Word that back in, when did he, first edition was 1529, I think, but he ended up adding to it. He wrote a book called The Institute of the, Institute of the Christian Religion, which again is a total nerdy title, and it ended up expanding to be 1,507 pages. It actually became more complex than the Bible itself half the time, in my opinion. But he literally tried to write a book to help people read the Bible because he realized it can be hard. It's big, it's diverse, over many centuries written, different forms of literature, etc., which is why God assigned Ephesians 4.11, pastors and teachers, to Ephesians 4.12, equip the saints for the work of ministry, right? So, yes, in due course, I would love to have a time where not just in a class for six weeks, but in a sermon series on Sunday morning, we will go through Revelation chapter, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. 
But I didn't want to do that until I got to do this. Because I felt like we needed a bit of back and forth. We needed some categories. We needed to see the difference so that at some point we can go through Revelation and I can say, hey, if you haven't listened to this, which is being recorded, uh, you go listen to that first. I think it will help you. But I can't think of a book, to be honest with you, that the church needs more in this century than the book of Revelation. And kind of like a kid that's never had vegetables, they are malnourished without it. But because of the absence and the difficulty and the debate, I was leery of giving it to us until we'd done this first. And so that is why. But I guarantee you when we go through Revelation, there will be people who have not sat through this or newer to the church or whatever who will be like, what? And there'll be some coffees or conversations where we kind of walk through what Revelation is trying to do. But I hope that this class is encouraging to you regarding the book of Revelation. That it actually makes you hungry for it, like the hors d'oeuvres have come, but where's my main course? Because what we just talked about in summary, the book of Revelation puts together so beautifully, it literally will soften your heart. And at times, it will give you courage to see how what God started, he so beautifully ends. And half the time, some of us are living live and we're not even seeing the true story. And I think it can change your boldness and it can give you comfort and give you direction for living life that I think this generation really needs, this church included. All right, we got maybe a time for a, a, a question or so, just a couple minutes left. Anybody want to ask anything or, or say anything? It's hard to see with the lights, but any, any questions? So I don't know if I've confused you then. Or it's a little scary to talk in a big room, or you don't even know what questions you're even supposed to ask, or all of the above. But please consider shooting me an email, even if you're like, I don't even know how to ask this, but here's a few bullet points, and I will find a question out of that, all right? And I won't even mention your name, don't worry, unless it's Brian Ott, I'm calling him out. <laughs> Brian Ott, I'm calling out, but nobody else. Well, maybe Doug Carlson, but... Uh, I love you guys, and if you're staying for corporate worship, I look forward to seeing you. Otherwise, have a good week.